When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. I'm John Wiener, and today we'll be talking about the New York Times coverage of Bernie Sanders. It's been condescending and terrible. Amy Wilentz will explain. We'll also speak with Charles Blow, the New York Times op-ed page columnist, about growing up black and poor in rural Louisiana. And we'll ask Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air, about the difference between interviewing Hillary and interviewing Bill. But of course, we're still thinking about the terrorist attacks in Paris on Friday that killed 139 people. For comment, we turn to Leila Lalami. She wrote the novel The Moor's Account, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Her essays and opinion pieces have appeared in The New York Times, The LA Times, The Washington Post, The Guardian, and The Nation. She also teaches. She's professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. Leila Lalami, welcome. Thank you for having me. So what happened in Paris, uh, 139 innocent civilians killed by ISIS, has happened recently in other places, and I'm not talking about 9-11. Right. I mean, it's happened in Beirut the day, just the day before. It happened in Egypt when a Russian airliner was brought down over the resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh. Um, it happened in Turkey. It happened in many other places, including in Syria for the last four years. You wrote for thenation.com a piece called To Defeat ISIS, We Must Call Both Western and Muslim Leaders to Account. Uh, who, who do you think should be called to account for the Paris killings? Well, the list is so long, it's, it's, it's almost <laughs> difficult to... Uh, to know where to begin, but I think, of course, the, the primary people who are to, to blame for this are ISIS. Uh, so, of course, that those are the people who are uh, responsible uh, for what happened in Paris and for what happened in Beirut and for, for what's been happening uh, for a while now. But certainly they're not the only ones who uh, have some responsibility in what happened. And I think that's where the conversation gets a little bit more difficult because people would rather just that we stop it saying, oh, it's ISIS. Well, of course it is ISIS, but it's also other people as well. And who are the other people on, on your list? Well, in the case of ISIS, uh, because it's, you know, the, the name stands for Islamic State in, in Iraq and Syria, and so this is absolutely connected to the events that have been happening in Syria. Uh, and this wouldn't have happened if Bashar al-Assad had simply listened to his people when four years ago uh, they rose up to demand what seemed at the time to be very modest democratic reforms and the release of political prisoners. Uh, but he chose to meet these demands with, with his military tanks and by repressing these protesters caused a number of people to rebel against his rule and that um, also attracted these um, these terrorists to his region. So he, he definitely bears a, a share of the blame. 
And of course, there's our own leaders. Uh, let's think about George W. Bush and uh, and his vice president, Dick Cheney. Right. I mean, and even before that, even in the case of, of Bashar al-Assad, I mean, as he was doing these things to his own people, he benefited from the support, initially uh, the support of many Western leaders, and then eventually, because people felt that um, this Arab Spring that was happening in the spring of 2011 wasn't was unpredictable, that it would have unpredictable results. And so they, a number of these Western governments decided to side with people like Assad, like Mubarak, and like Ben Ali, uh, initially at least. Um, and I think it's, so it's fair to say that um, by not supporting these democratic forces, they, they played into the hands of the non-democratic ones. And before that, of course, the, the invasion, the disastrous invasion of Iraq uh, by George W. Bush and all of the decisions that were made post-invasion. For example, the disbanding of the Iraqi army and um, um, the continuing flow of, of weapons and uh, all these things just contributed to the situation and made, basically you suddenly had all these people who had fought uh, in the insurgency. You had people who had fought in the army. You had a huge supply of weapons. Um, and, and they had nowhere else to go but to spread into, into the region. And so it really uh, was a contributing factor to all of this. Leila Lalame, you grew up in Morocco. Was Islamic fundamentalism part of your world? Not at all. I mean, I think this is one of the things that I find uh, really troubling is that when people discuss Islamic extremism, they seem to think that it has always been around. Uh, but in fact, this specific form that we are dealing with today, of the kind that we're seeing with ISIS, is a fairly recent phenomenon. And, um, and you can see, if you go back to the history, you can see how, uh, how we arrived at this situation. So when I was a child growing up in Morocco, I grew up in a secular family, and no one really I knew. I mean, I remember when I was a child, I don't think I knew anyone who even prayed or went to mosque except for my grandmother. Um, and my mother and my father, neither of them practiced. My mother was wearing the fashions of the 1970s, including those ridiculous pants and the, <laughs> and the miniskirts. I mean, that, that's how we grew up. And these people were, each one of them were Muslim and claimed that identity. Um, but what, what was also happening in the 1970s is that the forces that were um, speaking up for change in Morocco, for example, came from the left. And so what King Hassan did and what many other tyrants in the Middle East did was that when they were faced with this opposition from secular leftists, they decided to essentially purge that left and to encourage, as a countermeasure, to encourage the right. And this was the height of the Cold War. Certainly the United States wasn't going to tell all these countries uh, not to do that. It, in fact, encouraged that. Um, and so it was like a religious right was preferred to a secular left. And in the 80s, when um, all that oil money uh, started flowing... The, the Wahhabis were able to step into that void where, you know, for example, in the case of Morocco, uh, we refer to that period in the 80s as the years of lead. Tens of thousands of people were imprisoned. And so you had a, a, 
a situation in which that left was completely decimated. And into that void is where that Wahhabi money started flowing and those ideas started appearing. Ideas that, frankly, were very strange to us. I mean, I remember when I was in uh, last year of middle school, maybe first year of high school, uh, when when some girls started showing up at school with wearing headscarves and everybody was like, why are you wearing that? It's It seemed that strange at the time. But now if you go to a high school in my hometown of Rabat, you will see a public high school in, in Rabat. You will see that most of the girls are actually wearing headscarves. Now, does that mean that 20 years ago these people were not Muslim? Of course not. They were exactly the same people, except that... In between, what has happened is that these ideas have spread about what it means to be Muslim and that these outward manifestations of Islam were important and that genders had to be separated and that all of, this, all of these ideas that came with, with Wahhabism became implanted, so to speak. And so now we fast forward to, to today and you see where these ideas have led. The only identity that you can claim is that you're Muslim and that has to be an identity that is exclusive of all others. And that's a very frightening worldview. I hear a lot from Western leaders and, and our own pundits saying Muslims must speak out now against Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. <laughs> I wonder if you have any comment. I mean, I think if anybody is, is still asking for Muslims to speak out, they must really not be listening because Muslims are speaking out about, about these attacks from the very beginning. In fact, there is now a meme on Twitter, where, and you can probably look for it, where there's, there's a, you can press a button and it'll show you all of the, the Muslim organizations that have condemned these terrorist attacks, and it plays on a loop. <laughs> so it, it, it's really, frankly, ridiculous. And I think it's, 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 it's troubling. It's very troubling to me, even this idea that Muslims are, are somehow... To, to condemn something that is done um, by these terrorists. I mean, whenever a white man, a white Christian man, walks into a school or a movie theater with a gun and proceeds to shoot innocent people, no one goes around suggesting we should racially profile white men at movie theaters or at school, or that we should demand that white men, exclusively white men, um, condemn these killings. And, that, and the reason that we don't ask that is because we have very complex views of what it means to be a white man. We know that they come in many different uh, kinds of personalities. But somehow, when it comes to Muslims, we think that, oh no, unless they explicitly condemn over and over and devote their entire lives to condemning terrorism, then it's not sufficiently, it's not sufficient evidence that they, that they um, condemn terrorism. And that's very troubling. Leila Lalami, she wrote about how to defeat ISIS for thenation.com. Thank you, Leila. Thank you for having me. Later in the podcast, we'll speak with Charles Blow. He's the New York Times op-ed page columnist. We'll talk with him about how he grew up poor and black in rural Louisiana. Now it's time to talk about the New York Times coverage of Bernie Sanders. It's been terrible. Amy Wilentz has been reading it. She's a journalist and author most recently of the award-winning book, 
Farewell, Fred Voodoo, a letter from Haiti. She's former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The London Review of Books, and a dozen other publications. And she teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy Valence, welcome. Thanks. Nice to be here. Well, a week ago, the Sunday New York Times had a page one story headline, Bernie Sanders Won't Kiss Your Baby. I called you immediately. Bad Bernie. Bad Bernie. <laughs> bad, bad Bernie. Well, this is like a kind of classic consummation of all the badness that the New York Times has done to Bernie <laughs> Sanders recently. And it's almost, for Sanders, it's almost like a victory to get these kinds of stories from the New York Times. One of my favorite things about it is when it says, this same piece says, his high-minded style carries risks. This is in the uh, story about not kissing babies. He doesn't like babies that much, apparently. His high-minded style carries risks, the New York Times says, like, I think, the risk it carries is the New York Times might attack him for having a high-minded style. They prefer, apparently, when it comes to Bernie Sanders, a stupider candidate. My impression of him is what he likes to do is have conversations about the issues with voters whom he respects. He respects the voter. When did this start in the New York Times? When did you first notice the coverage in our national newspaper of record was, was so condescending? Well, there was the fabulous and actually very funny and smart but terribly snarky piece by my friend, Sarah Lyle. I have to uh, be honest. I've known her for a long time. The whole attitude of this piece, this was the first profile, I think, of Sanders uh, for the election calendar. And it's about his revolutionary roots in Vermont in the 1960s. The first sentence is when he came to Vermont in the late 1960s to help plan the upending of the old social order, the future presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, blah, blah. And that, to me, they, she's just being like, what, like Sanders is what an idiot, you know? <laughs> yeah, I went back to this piece after you reminded me about him. The uh, Sarah Lyle writes, the young Mr. Sanders was a kitchen table fulminator. That can't be good. Uh, it's not good, but it is a great phrase. I mean, I was just talking about it this morning with a friend and, you know, kitchen table fulminator. You can see what that person looks like. You know what that person is. That's an agitator. That's a fulminator. That's a communist. That's all these things that uh, resonate in the mind. Whereas we're talking about Bernie Sanders. We've all seen him. He's not, he's no longer a kitchen table fulminator. Also, what she, one of the, points of the piece is how underfunded he was as a 1960s agitator. Like he lived on a shoestring. It was a subsistence living. He was a kitchen table, uh, militant kind of person, as though there was something wrong with that when that's what, you know, most of his generation was doing at the time who thought about politics. Now, after that piece came out, there were a lot of complaints from uh, Bernie Sanders supporters to the New York Times. And the New York Times takes seriously, has a special uh, department, the public editor, uh, headed by Margaret Sullivan, which promises to read every complaint that comes in. How, how has the New York Times responded to complaints about this condescending treatment of Bernie Sanders? So Margaret Sullivan, she really does an interesting job in this editor's note. She's, she goes right to the people who complain. And she says they've, they say that he's not taken seriously. And she says, instead, they say there's too much snark and too much fluff. And then she goes on to quote their own 
interview with Bernie Sanders. The fluff may have reached its zenith, she says. At least one can always hope it's reached its zenith. That's Margaret Sullivan of The New York Times talking, with an exchange included in a Times Magazine interview, not part of the Times political coverage. That's making excuses by the time. It was by a well-known freelance contributor, Anna Marie Cox. And Anna Marie Cox asks in the interview, do you think it's fair that Hillary's hair gets a lot more scrutiny than yours does? And Bernie replies, Hillary's hair gets more scrutiny than my hair. (laughs) And uh, the interviewer says, yeah. And Bernie says, is that what you're asking? And she says, yeah. And he says, okay, Anna, I don't mean to be rude here. I'm running for president of the United States on serious issues, okay? Do you have serious questions? Um, so many, Great. many readers found that an objectionable, Great. objectionable question to be asking yeah. a candidate. You've been in the journalism business for a couple of decades. Is your sense here that this, the New York Times has is motivated to try to undermine Bernie because of their political agenda? Well, I feel very strongly that in the coverage... Um, and even it leaks into news coverage, too. It, it leaks into the stories they decide to cover. It certainly goes into the reporters' notebooks. They strongly think Hillary's going to be the candidate. And they, I believe, strongly support Hillary Clinton for president. And that's what I feel, that every time she's losing ground uh, to Bernie or seems to be even falling a point behind in the poll, that then they get very concerned and one of these pieces comes out. But, you know, I am I've worked for the mainstream media for a long time. And although I have a lot of friends in the non-mainstream media, viz my interlocutor here today, I have never really seen a conspiracy to attack or a conspiracy to defend. But what you see really is just the culture of the organization that is the mainstream newspaper. And they really don't get Bernie Sanders, and they're amazed that he's come this far, and they want to uh, analyze it from the kind of mainstream point of view that they have. And that makes it, uh, that makes for all the snark and all the dismissiveness and and the reeling kind of coverage that goes from one side of the the fight ring to the other side of the fight ring, depending on what Sanders does, so that you have a situation where uh, on October 18th, he's changing his campaign tactics in Iowa and speaking to small crowds and uh, being warm toward people and uh, changing up, which they think is hypocritical of him. And then on October 31st, he's not kissing enough babies and not speaking to enough people in small places. So they they really don't know what to do about this. They also have a big problem with an unconventional politician. So what they do is they they take Bernie and Bernie says he's unconventional and they recognize, yeah, he's unconventional and they upbraid him for being unconventional. But then if he does something conventional, like start to criticize his primary rival, Hillary Clinton, then they say, isn't he going to have a big problem? Because he's unconventional, but this is conventional. So it's really damned if you do, damned if you don't for Bernie Sanders with the New York Times. And I will note that for the Kissing Babies profile, he uh, refused to be interviewed for that article. I know you've uh, you've been reading through the uh, the files. Have you found any other telling examples of the New York Times coverage of Bernie Sanders? Well, another example of the damned if you do, damned if you don't is uh, 
uh, Bernie Sanders and his fundraising. So the New York Times, I think, liked Bernie Sanders more when he had less money. That was more appealing to them. That was right for Bernie Sanders. He should not have money because he's an unconventional candidate. But then he started to get all those contributions that eventually added up to a serious amount of money. And he does do fundraisers, although he doesn't have a super PAC. They don't like that because an unconventional politician should never raise money, according to the New York Times. So here's an example of a typical lead on a Bernie Sanders story for the New York Times. Senator Bernie Sanders has repeatedly denounced campaigns that he says are built around their candidates attending fundraisers. He has insisted that he will not, quote, go out hustling money from the wealthiest people in the country, unquote, and declared at the first Democratic debate that he is, quote, not raising money from millionaires and billionaires, unquote. Yet Mr. Sanders was cheered at a fancy campaign fundraiser at the Hollywood home of Sid Lebovich, a high-end real estate agent, and his wife Linda on Wednesday night. Tickets for the event sold for a minimum of $250. Now, I know that Alert Nation readers might not have that $250 so that they could get in, or anyway, might not have it on hand for that reason. But I can say as a Hollywood aficionado that a dinner that you can get into for $250 is not what Bernie Sanders is talking about when he talks about going to fundraisers with millionaires and billionaires. And and the New York Times perfectly well knows that. They know what it is. They know what it is. Amy Wilance, a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Thank you, Amy. Thanks. Now it's time to talk with Charles Blow. He's a columnist for the New York Times op-ed page. He's also written a memoir of growing up poor and black in rural Louisiana. It's called Fire Shut Up in My Bones. It's out now in paperback. I spoke with him about it when he was in L.A. in September 2014. The opening scene of the book is unforgettable. Tell us that story. I am a 20-year-old college student. I am um, away at college, which is not that far away from my home. It's like 25 minutes from where I grew up. And my mom calls, and uh, she says, someone here wants to speak to you. And there's a silence on the phone, and um, there's a voice that says, you know, you know I forget, uh, how's it going, boy, or something like that. And it is the voice of the older cousin who had abused me, sexually abused me when I was a child. And in that moment, I'm not even, you know, thinking straight, rationally, anything. I just run out of the house and I have a gun in the car, which my mom had given to me to take to school just in case, which I don't know, just in case what, but just in case. And and I don't even, you know, I never touched it. I never dealt with it. Uh, you know, I'm, this, I'm three years into college or more, Um and the only time I remembered that it was there is I would be cleaning my car out and I'd have to move it to vacuum underneath the seats. And I immediately thought it was there. And I just thought that what he had done, not just the abuse, but more importantly, the, the bullying in the wake of the abuse that I believe was meant to keep me quiet and that, in fact, had caused all sorts of torment for me. That I believe that if I removed him from the world, I would remove my pain from the world. It's not logical. It was. It was. The, you know, homicidal impulses are not necessarily logical. But but I jump in a car and I'm racing down an interstate to kill him. And I don't. 
<laughs> I, I, I turn off after about two or three miles and I say, this, you have to let this go. You can't keep living your life through the eyes of a seven-year-old boy. You have to, you can't give him that much power over you. You can't give him that much agency over your future. And you are the captain of your own fate. And you can determine what your life is and can be. And I returned, turned off and went back home. Now, a lot of us uh, liberal middle class white people in California are kind of stunned by the idea that a 20-year-old black college student in Louisiana has a gun. What's the story here? My mom gave, you know, she's, I was going off to college. She says, oh, and take a gun. I mean, you know, in Louisiana, everybody had guns. I didn't know of a single house in my hometown where people didn't have guns and all boys had guns. We, there were rifles, but, you know, they weren't handguns, which is what this was. But we had rifles, and you'd hunt, and you'd you know, keep the snakes out of the grass and the vermin out of the garden, and you know, we used guns. It wasn't over our beds. There were gun racks where our favorite twenty-two rifle was. And um, so the presence of guns was not a shocking thing for me. But having it in, at, in a college environment, I didn't want to have it there. So that's why I kept it in the car. I didn't want to bring it into the house because there were people who were from California and other places who I thought they would never understand why I have this gun. And you move around so much when you're in college that I didn't want to leave it somewhere in a, while I was moving. Um, but, but strange enough, I wasn't the only person to come with a gun. I mean, there were people with guns. You went to college at Grambling. How did things go at Grambling? They were good in in a way, but uh, I, but I quickly joined a fraternity, and that became another exercise in violence. Um, there's a tremendous amount of hazing uh, involved in in fraternity uh, pledging and initiation. Well, can we talk about thanks, Big Brother? May I have another? I guess this was not the New York Times. No, that is. <laughs> That is, you know, kind of make up uh, cute little, what they think is cute little phrases for you to say to invite them to continue to haze. So you take one paddling and then you ask for another and they continue to do it. I have to say that this part of your book was just as shocking to me, I was never in a fraternity of this kind, as the sexual abuse you suffered as a seven-year-old. Because these are, you know, 20-year-old men... this is happening all over the country every fall. It's going on right now. You know, a million young men are doing this. Uh, what do you think is going on with this? I, I think that in some ways, uh, you know, um, it is uh, kind of masculinity run off the rails that that young men sometimes do look for some sort of rite of passage, but this is... Uh, a, a, a kind of bastardization of that idea, and a and a, and an obscenity with within a searching, and uh, and that that the, this the hazing process takes advantage of the fact that men want to prove themselves in some way, and 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 they they want to physically show that they have endurance. Um, and and that was what it was. I mean, it it became uh, an extraordinary thing when you when I look back on it now, and and even I, you know some adults of my age will still defend it that that it was worth it. And do you think this had any special meaning for 
for you because of the abuse you had suffered when you were a little kid? I think there are echoes of the same sort of kind of submission, be, being chosen and then submitting to, to abuse and, and enduring it and, you know, coming out of it and keeping it secret. All of those things are real. Um, uh, but, uh, but I think part of probably the biggest effect that the, the abuse had on me was that I had already started to cleave from my body, that my spirit and my body seemed to exist separate from one another. So no matter how abusive someone could be to my body, it, I always felt safe and apart from it. And so that I was actually able to endure it even more because it, I was psychically separated. I have to say the most shocking thing about this whole chapter is not you suffering abuse, but then you uh, become an abuser yourself. Yes. You don't you don't look too good in this part. Oh no, I'm not the perfect protagonist, and I, you know I look at that guy and I don't like that guy. But I think that you have to that that is part of the process, and sometimes people become the pendulum, and you swing too far in one direction, and then you find yourself swinging too far in the other direction, and you're just trying to find your middle and what is right and finding the courage to stand up and say, this is not me. This is not right. And 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 I didn't always have that courage. And, and I became the monster that I was trying to get away from. Now we get to the most surprising part of Fire Shut Up in My Bones, the CIA part. (laughs) You and the CIA. That's crazy. (laughs) So they would come to school uh, uh, every year, I guess, and they would recruit. And um, one, I don't know how I became a recruit, actually. I can't remember, you know, if I went to something, but I remember them coming into the class and Eventually, I'm a recruit um, and for an internship, and so they fly me to Virginia, and you know, there's a we're supposed to do like a battery of tests and interviews and physicals, and also including in that is a lie detector test. Now, wait a minute, you wanted to be a CIA agent? No, I wasn't an agent, but I just thought the internship would look good because at the time, I re- I still thought I was going to be a a politician. So I thought that it would look good on a college resume to have interned at the CIA. It made sense to me. I didn't want to be an agent. I didn't want to be a spy. I didn't want to have like a black trench coat or something. I think that I'm breezing through this thing. You know, everything's working. And I get to the lighter sector test and they, uh, and I'm not even thinking about that because I'm not intending to lie. Uh, I'm not in, in thinking about that this is a, even a big deal. And, um, they asked two questions that really completely threw me off. They, once they asked, have you ever used drugs? Which I had never used. And I say, no. And the thing scratches. Before I could even recover from that, they ask another question, which is, you know, something to on the lines of, have you ever had sex with a man? And the child abuse from when I was seven years old is the, immediately flooded into my brain. And I did not know how to answer the question because he wasn't a man at the time. It wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't sex because it wasn't sort of insertive intercourse. It it wasn't consensual. How do you answer that question? And I don't, you know, I couldn't answer it. So I I said no, and the things went crazy and scratched. And I, when it was over, I knew I had failed. And I turned around to the guy and I just what I had never told anybody. I told this guy who was not interested in hearing it at all. And. Um, 
And I, but I begged him to let me do it again. And he let me take the test over. And this time when he asked that question, I said, yes. And it still said I was lying. <laughs> and I realized in that moment that there's no, I don't have a yes, no answer to this question, <laughs> which means that I will never be free of it. I don't even know what he did. How do I describe it? So yes, I failed. I did. I would did not get an internship at the CIA. Let's talk about how we can protect lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender young people from predators. Well, I mean, I think you know what the data show us is that people who are LGBT are uh, uh, have a high prevalence of having a higher than normal prevalence of having uh, been victims of child sexual abuse when they were younger. And there are two schools of thought on this, one of which I completely disagree with, which is that the child sexual abuse is somehow making people LGBT. Um, and there's a you know uh, very corrosive, pernicious argument here, which is that if there's an environmental cause, then there must be an environmental cure. And that's the danger in it. Um, the other argument is one that I believe more firmly, which is that it is very likely that children who will eventually identify as LGBT are more likely to be targeted to be, to be victims of childhood sexual abuse. And if you flip it and look at it that way, then you realize how incredibly important it is not only to not make it uncomfortable for these kids, but to make even safer spaces, even more space for them to be vocal and open about what is happening and the difficulties they're having and what may be going on in their lives. And if we can, if we do it that way, then we probably have a better shot of protecting more of these children from being abused because predators depend on silence. Charles Blow, his new book is Fire Shut Up in My Bones. Charles, thanks for the book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. We spoke with Charles Blow in September 2014. His book is out now in paperback. Finally today, we want to pay tribute to my favorite interviewer on the radio, Terry Gross. This fall is her 40th anniversary on Fresh Air. She's done something like 13,000 interviews. I was lucky enough to interview her in 2004 when she published her book, All I Did Was Ask. At the time, Hillary Clinton was a senator and had just published a memoir called Living History. Bill Clinton, of course, was out of office and had just published his own memoir called My Life. I talked with Terry Gross about the difference between interviewing Hillary and interviewing Bill. I wanted to ask you about your interviews with, with politicians who are trained to avoid answering real questions uh, and instead hit their talking points and stay on message. Hillary Clinton uh, was your guest when her book came out. I, I thought you tried really hard to get her to answer your questions, but I felt she, she defeated you. Uh, I wonder what your strategies are in getting political figures to, to really answer questions. You know what my strategy is in interviewing politicians? To leave it to other people. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't enjoy interviewing politicians. Not that Fresh Air is supposed to be about my personal enjoyment, but I find it very, very frustrating. And I also often feel I'm the wrong person for the job. I think politicians are so 
wedded to their talking points. It's so hard to knock them off message. And the best way of doing it is to be following the beat, to be following them so closely that you know everything they've said and done, and you can call them on any exaggeration or any mistruth that they state. It's hard for me to do that. I'm not following them. I'm, I'm not covering the political beat. I'm doing a little bit of everything. So I usually don't even feel qualified in that sense to interview politicians. Well, you, you interviewed uh, Bill Clinton when his book came out, and, and that was more, I thought, uh, of a real conversation. You, you asked them about the culture wars. I, I listened to this again last night at your website, and, and I, I wonder if you felt your interview with Bill turned out better than your interview with Hillary, and if so, why? Well, I think it's easier to interview somebody when they're out of office, okay. particularly if they're not about to run for another office. Yeah. You know, Bill Clinton's goal during that interview, if he had a goal, was to promote his book, which means to be as interesting as possible. Yes. Whereas when somebody's in office, their goal is to stay in office and to get reelected in office. Mm-hmm. It's that whole permanent campaign. The truth is, I prefer to interview politicians when their political career is behind them. Because <laughs> then maybe they can actually tell you something. Terry Gross on the difference between interviewing Hillary and interviewing Bill. I spoke with her in 2004. We salute her on the 40th anniversary of her show, Fresh Air. Thanks to our guest this week, Leila Lalami talked about ISIS. Amy Walentz analyzed the condescending coverage of Bernie Sanders in the New York Times. And Charles Blow of the New York Times op-ed page talked about his memoir, Fire Shot Up in My Bones. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced with the L.A. Review of Books. It's recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Oriano at Emerson College, Los Angeles, which offers a range of courses, nights and weekends for working adults. From social media marketing to TV writing, from 3D animation to publishing, find out more at emerson.edu. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. I'm your host and producer, John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>